Okay, well, we, we come to the final evening talk of this retreat. And as I said last night, what we're going to look at tonight, if we have time, I'm not going to rush it, but if we have time, what I want to, well, I'm going to start off is looking at the Brahma Viharas, <clears throat> these four practices which are often seen within particular Theravada tradition as being concentration practices. Other traditions are often completely absent um, these particular factors. And then, if we have time, I particularly want to look at what is mindfulness? What is this thing we've been developing over the week? Is it just paying attention, or is attention something different from mindfulness? And so hopefully I'll pick up, or even if we just deal with that briefly at the end, I want to pick that little one up. Okay, I'm going to start with a couple of quotes. <clears throat> one which I paraphrased, I'm going to read you the proper thing now, because this is, uh, this is actually a translation of it. This is by a 14th century Tibetan um, spiritual master called Longchen Rebjampa. Thus a person who, by having taken refuge, has become the site for spiritual growth, will cultivate their mind for the welfare of all of those who are alive by letting the flower of compassion blossom in the soil of love and tending it with the pure water of equanimity in the cool shade of joyfulness. Now, let's go back to the really the place in the older part of the canon, in the Suttanapata, where the Buddha actually speaks about metta, the metta-sutta. Interestingly, this is, uh, you know, for all of those who were schooled in the days when you had to recite the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of the day, uh, the metta-sutta is done in Sri Lankan schools. Everybody recites the metta-sutta at the beginning of the day. Um, and it's called the metta-kalanya-sutta. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain that calm state, nibbana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble, contented, easily supported with few duties, of light livelihood with senses calm, discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached to families. He should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men might censure him. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome. Whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are to be born, may all these beings be happy. Let none deceive another nor despise another, any person whatsoever in any place. Let him not wish any harm to another out of anger or ill will. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let his thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above and below and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred and without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits or lies down, as long as he is awake, he should develop this mindfulness. This, they say, is the noblest way of living here. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous and endowed with insight by discarding attachment to sense desires, 
Never again is such a one reborn. I think he makes his point. (laughs) Well, that's the task. Meta. Meta. Well, how do we translate this term? Often it gets translated as loving kindness. Um, Then it gets close to a very near enemy of uh, meta, which is sentimentality, Um, when we translate it as loving kindness. It's really a boundless friendliness. It has no boundedness to it whatsoever. And in fact, metta is a distinctly Buddhist emotion in many ways. It's an attitude really of the heart and the mind. It's a development, a cultivation of the heart and the mind, which basically eludes really any adequate translation into Western languages. It's derived from the same root as the word mitta, in Pali, and the word mitta means a friend. A kalyana mitta, just for those who don't know, a kalyana mitta is a spiritual friend, you know, or mitra as it is in Sanskrit. Its uh, actual main meaning, or one of its meanings, one of its uh, denotations, signifies growing fat. <laughs> <laughs> This is kind of expansive love where you're swelling up with this boundless friendliness. (laughs) You can't keep it to yourself. Um, It has a connotation of spreading as well, of being spread, um, expanding. So metta is basically an emotion of radiant, radiant, expansive friendliness towards all things, including yourself. towards all beings, everything that lives. Now, the Buddha basically teaches two ways to liberation. And the first of those is what we've been practicing. This is why it was Awareness and the Path to Awakening. This is the title of the course of this particular retreat. So the first method he teaches is Satipatthana, the establishing of mindfulness. This is the first method he teaches the second method he really teaches, I think, is the Brahma Viharas. Again, it takes a little excursion into just a bit of Indian history to see why this is a path to liberation. Within the traditions, this typically has been treated primarily as a concentration practice, you know, developing of friendliness and the other Brahma Viharas as well, compassion, gentle joy, and equanimity have been treated as concentration practices which will lead you, according to these very traditional views, will lead you to a rebirth in the Brahma heavens. <laughs> yeah, because the word Brahma Vihara, again, it's not an easy term to translate. It's often translated as sublime abidings or something of that form, divine abodes. They're all very strange stuff. Um, It literally means dwelling with Brahma. Now, Brahma was the kind of principal Hindu deity, or principal Brahmanic deity, uh, in ancient India. And if you said to somebody in that time, by practicing these things, you were going to go and dwell with Brahma, then it meant you would be liberated actually liberated. So the Buddha is using it again as a metaphor. Obviously it means a lot more within Indian society when you utter the words Brahma and Vihara than it does in English. 
when you speak about it. However, as uh, a colleague of mine once said, unfortunately a lot of the people in the early traditions were a bit literal-minded, not like the Buddha. They weren't as clever as the Buddha. Um, they took it literally that if you said, you know, practicing these things, you would go to Brahma, the, you would develop Brahma Viharas, then that you were literally going to go and live with Brahma. And that's how the tradition has taken it. These practices are far, far more important than that. Um, they are actually um, a form of mindfulness in themselves. Metabhavana is the cultivation of boundless friendliness. Boundless friendliness towards all beings. It also activates the heart directly to open up to others. It Actually, in the Pali, you don't get this in the English, you even don't get it in the, even with the word love. It has the, in the Pali, it actually has a sticky quality. It makes you stick to others. Whereas actually most of the unwholesome things, such as hindrances and unwholesome states of mind, push you away from others, force you away back into self, take you right back into your selfing. You know, me first, me second, and me third. <laughs> you know, right back there. Whereas the qualities, particularly the Brahma Viharas and other wholesome mental factors, bring you into close relationship, bring, literally bring you out of yourself yeah? by opening the heart to others. There's a little bit more room in your heart, and obviously we're using a metaphor, there's a little bit more room in your heart than just for you. Actually, you don't really, really have you in there either most of the time. Um, there might not be a lot of sensual craving there, <laughs> but not a lot of genuine affection and friendliness so traditionally, the practice starts with the cultivation of friendliness towards oneself. Um, Eastern teachers, I think I might have mentioned this, Eastern teachers are quite astounded at how little people in the West like themselves. Um, they were astounded, actually, at the difference, the changes they had to make. So, for example, in the Brahma Viharas, you had to, they, they had to make this adjustment from actually developing this friendliness towards yourself, which is almost taken as a given in Eastern culture, uh, to being something that you have, we really have to concentrate on in the West, really start to open ourselves up to a friendliness towards our own processes, towards this, you know, towards this whole being who sits here. Because if we don't, we find it very difficult to authentically extend it towards others. If there's no friendliness in my heart for myself then there, can't, there can be very little friendliness in my heart towards others here. Similarly, there was a just kind of slight digression, but similarly you can see how changes have to be made for Western culture. The Dalai Lama, years and years, used to present a traditional teaching, which is within Tibetan Buddhism, which was to treat all beings as if they were your mother until he figured out that the relationship between <laughs> Westerners and their mothers wasn't exactly the same as Tibetans and their mothers. <laughs> so he now presents it as treating all beings as if they've been your best friend. <laughs> so you can, you can see how often the cultural differences are very, very great here. 
And so actually, when the practice in the West, we spend a lot of time in trying to develop this sense of friendliness towards ourselves, this sense of warmth towards ourselves. And that really means this process of radical acceptance of who and how we are at this present moment in time. Remember I spoke last night about, you know, we can only start, I think it was in reply to one of the questions, we can only start with who and what we are at this moment, not in some idealised version of who we'd like to be, but only taking ourselves as the ground, almost a launch pad, you know, for where we're going. Now that means a process of radical acceptance, that actually implies metta. This implies this notion of metta of developing a sense of friendliness and acceptance towards ourselves, not to be dwelling in shame and hate and blame and self-criticism, the self-laceration that we often subject ourselves to. If you ever want to see a definition of a Buddhist hell realm, it's the hell we put ourselves through. That's the definition of a Buddhist hell realm. It's not something somebody else does to you. It's what we do to ourselves. Remember the image I gave you when I was talking about those six realms as being psychological states? Well, nobody judges you. You judge yourself by what you see in the mirror that the god of death holds up to you. This is how you judge yourself. And that's often extremely destructive, often extremely brutal the way we engage in this. And I think I mentioned it to you. We often make a virtue out of you know, this fact that we are hard on ourselves. You know? And I've many times heard people say, well, look, I'm only being as hard on you as I am to myself. And I think, as I mentioned, you know, I'm beating you up because I'm beating me up. Yeah? I will put you through a really tough time because I put myself through a really tough time. I put myself through the mincemeater, the mincemeat maker, you know, kind of grinding myself down through this stuff. So meta is the complete and utter antidote to this, and it's not sentimental, which is why I tend to move away from one of the standard translations you often find, which is loving kindness, which gets um, rather sentimental. In a, in a letter that Oscar Wilde once wrote, um, he called De Profundis, it's actually published after his death, called De Profundis, he actually says a sentimentalist who is a person who wants the luxury of a genuine emotion without any effort. Yeah. It's a very profound statement. You know, sentimentalists want it easy. You know? And actually, if you like, the genuine emotion requires a lot of work. Metta is no different. Metta is not something that comes really easy. Often when I teach long retreats here on metta, you, know, you get people coming into personal interview and saying something like, I've been doing this for two weeks and I still don't feel it. And I kind of go, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of inclining the mind towards it. So this is why it's a mindfulness of completely inclining the mind. It's almost, if you like, a behavioral gesture with the mind, where I keep directing my mind towards what is good and what is wholesome and what is friendly on a very, very regular basis. The ideal practice, if you have an ideal practice at home, would look something like this. Doing a session of Satipatthana Vipassana as one of your sessions and doing a session of Metta as being the other of your sessions. 
You know, that would be the ideal practice. And I know we don't live in that ideal world. But to, to, to balance both, not to say that metta is absent out of the, even the practices that we've been doing here. As probably some of you will have got totally sick of me saying um, over this week, you know, lead your mind gently and kindly back to whatever the object is that we're looking at, whatever the investigation we engage in. You know, look without judgment. You know, all these kind of verbal prompts I've been giving you, and hopefully some of them might be etched on you now. <laughs> I've said them so often. Um, that when we are practicing this, actually a kindness, a friendliness is at the heart of the practice. You know, this is not about giving ourselves another hard time. It's hard enough as it is, isn't it? The practice itself is hard enough as it is, just trying to follow the instructions, do the practice, you know, examine what is coming up. That is pretty hard because some of the stuff that comes up is often very, very difficult material. You know, not always, but you know, certainly during the, some period in the retreat, difficulties arise. Often at the beginning, sometimes in the middle, and sometimes at the end, and sometimes all the way through. <laughs> you know? So why do we want to give ourselves even harder time by lacerating ourselves with all kinds of ideals about what should be happening? I should have a blank mind. <laughs> or I should be able to stay with the breath. You know? I actually get a picture when people say to me, no, I can't stay with the breath, that they're actually inwardly going like this. <laughs> Trying to hold on to the breath desperately, or whatever the object might be. This is not friendly. This is not kind. This is what I refer to right at the beginning of the retreat as... What this uh, Sri Lankan friend of mine once said, you know, of making your lives even more miserable when you get meditation. <laughs> we can do that in this pursuit of an ideal and, and perfectionism. You know? That's another thing that Westerners are very, very wedded to. Doing it perfectly. I've got to do it perfectly. What is perfectly in this? There isn't. Actually, there's only the process. As I kept trying to remind you, and this is part of the friendliness as well, there is no failure. There is nobody who can't meditate. Yeah? Sure, it's difficult at times. It, the whole process is difficult. But it's the process that's difficult. It doesn't mean that there's some kind of idealised technique which will get you there. You know, often, again, this is often a question that arises for many people. I don't know if it's arisen for yourselves. If only I get the technique perfect, then I will get the result. You know? So, it's kind of an illusion of technique here. <laughs> you know, an illusion that the technique will get you through. It won't. What will get you through is kindness. What will get you through is friendliness towards your own processes. So, this friendliness is really at the very, very heart of it. And before I go on and say anything more slightly abstract about this whole process, let's talk about the practice itself. Often when this is done as a practice, it's not done more, as I say, as a concentration practice. And this means repeating phrases. You know, repeating phrases. You know, may I be well and may I be happy. May I find peace and ease in this world. Things of this sort. May I be free from suffering. 
You know, these are the kinds of traditional phrases that are used. Now, repeated again and again and again and again, they almost become mantric. Yeah? They become almost mantras. May I be well and may I be happy. Yeah? Obviously, we switch it when we go to you, when we go to another. May you be well and may you be happy. May you be free from suffering. May you be free from pain. May you be at ease in this world. You know, say that again and again and again and again. It becomes very, very mantric. What you get there is concentration. You get concentration there. There are actually something called metajanas uh, in the practice. You know, these are concentration states which are associated with the development of meta practice. This is not the way I think it should be practiced. It's a way of being practiced, but it's not a way that leads to mindfulness and insight. The way that leads to mindfulness and insight is what I call more less of a recitation practice and more of a listening practice. Okay? We listen to the words. We don't just repeat them. We say them and we listen to them with our hearts. And actually, very interestingly, of course, the word chitta in Pali means both heart and mind. Teachers used to say to me, particularly, um, particularly Tibetan teachers, used to say, Westerners are very fond of thinking with this, not with this. Yeah. Actually, they both need to be coupled together. Yeah. Heart and mind, it's the same word as I say in Pali, chitta, means both heart and mind. So this is a learning to think, to listen with the heart, to start to listen out for what the resonances are of the phrases that you're repeating, slowing it right down, almost listening to what is in between the lines, listening to the silence. This is like dropping pebbles in a lake and watching the ripples come out. This is what we're doing. We're dropping pebbles, if you like, into the lake of the universe. Without getting too metaphysical about it, it's just seeing what happens when we do this and incline our minds constantly in this listening receptiveness. So we're becoming receptive to the possibility of friendliness and kindness being activated in our heart-mind here, rather than keep reciting again and again and again, which gets actually quite boring. It really, really does get quite boring doing it that way. But this way is actually to open up into a genuine relationship with these phrases, a genuine relationship with them. So actually it's not you so much reciting them as them reciting you. Think about that for a second. (laughs) You're being recited by these kind of words. I know this sounds bizarre probably to a lot of you. But in a sense, it's learning to come into a different relationship with these phrases so they work on you. Yeah? They work on producing something within you. Almost like the way, and this is slightly the way poetry can work on people. It works on producing something, and that something is often unexplainable, how it works on you. you know, this is what great language does. I often recommend people when they're doing this practice as well, not just to take the stock phrases, but to mould them into your own words. Find them in your own words, expressing the same spirit, but in your own words, because you have to have a relationship with the phrases that you use. If they kind of seem distant and archaic, which of course often when they're translated out of Pali they do, 
then they're not going to work so much on you. But if you can put them in some phrase form that actually preserves the spirit of what is there, then put it into your own language. This is so, so important. So what I'm suggesting is that if you do do metta practice, try developing a different relationship to it than just reciting these phrases. Reciting the phrases will have an effect, but probably not the effect that you were thinking about. You'll probably get more concentration. You'll probably get more focus. You won't necessarily get the effect of metta growing in your heart. It's only with this way of really, really opening that you get it. So metta is this activation of the heart to open to others, to draw close to others. You know? um, and it ultimately, of course, as you heard from the Long Champa quote, it's the soil out of which compassion grows. You know? Many people like to leap into compassion, you know? You know, trying to be compassionate. If there's no friendliness there, There's no nutriment. There's no soil in which it's embedded. It's only with the development of the ground. Notice again the lots of horticultural metaphors in that quote I gave you. Almost a horticultural metaphor in growing it. This is what we're attempting to do. We're attempting to grow meta in our lives. To grow compassion here. Well, actually meta here more is the soil, as Longchempa says the soil in which we plant the seeds of compassion. We start to plant the seeds of them and they grow out of that soil. Try growing something without any soil. It just doesn't get it. I mean, you can grow it for a certain extent in an artificial environment, but it just does not flourish. This is about the flourishing of this boundless friendliness. Now, the Buddha, I think, is maintaining, basically, that... Holding yourself in right mindfulness, you know, the right mindfulness that's spoken about in the Eightfold Path, is exactly the same as suffusing the world with boundless friendliness. It's exactly the same. This is what we're engaged in, in both cases. The outcome, actually, of Satipatthana, if we practice it properly with the kindness and the gentleness that I've kind of kept indicating to you, throughout the week, and I've just tried to explain a little bit more about. With that, you know, with that, hopefully if we get it, we really start to develop healthy relationships of friendliness towards ourselves and ultimately friendliness towards others. By the way, friendliness doesn't have to be, and this is why love is often so misleading in in this sense, it doesn't mean we have to love others. We can be friendly and respectful to others. You know, when you come across that really difficult person in your life, and I'm sure we've all got them, (laughs) um, when we come across that difficult person, it's very difficult to get beyond, you know, if we have an ideal of perhaps loving them, being compassionate towards them. Well, actually, more often than not, you can actually develop a friendlier attitude towards that person rather than immediately have this idea I've got to love them no you haven't you've got to behave better with them you've got to be friendlier towards them as you've got to be friendlier towards yourself so again it's it's not trying to kind of develop ideals 
before you've got a genuine ground out of which to grow something. And metta is the genuine soil out of which compassion will ultimately grow. So a person who has right mindfulness is a friendly being and a compassionate being. If we genuinely have right mindfulness, we have friendliness and compassion. And in a way, I might as well actually link this in with what I was going to speak about at the end, but that makes it almost seem like a separate topic, and it isn't. It's actually the same topic. Because when we have genuine mindfulness, and this was made very explicit in the material of the Abhidhamma, this real compendium of psychological material um, in the Buddhist canon, in the Pali canon, when we have genuine right mindfulness, it's what's called a universal, wholesome mental factor. It's called a sobana factor, a beautiful factor. When we have that, it pulls in every other wholesome mental factor, arises with it, which includes, actually, it's usually defined as non-hatred and non-greed, which actually implies love or friendliness and generosity. It includes a lot of other things, like equanimity, for example, um, the whole list goes, you know, respect for others, you know, non-aversion, non-hatred, non-greed, non-delusion. All of these arise when you have genuine right mindfulness. Yeah. This is why it's not simply paying attention. Right mindfulness is a very, very specific quality a specific way of looking at things, of being engaged with things, which isn't simply paying attention. So when we talk about the mindfulness that's developed, you know, actually right mindfulness is actually this compassionate, friendly attitude in the world that we bring. And it's the natural outcome of that because it arises together with it. When I'm genuinely mindful in this world, when I'm genuinely mindful, I'm a compassionate being. It's in non-mindfulness, in unmindfulness, that we find the other factors, the unwholesome mental factors coming in. Yeah. This is actually really about vigilance. Yeah, a degree of vigilance, being really there, attentive to what is happening. You know, minute by minute, being vigilant, what your mind is doing. Now, of course, this becomes much, much easier the more we practice the more immersed in the sense we get in or understanding of the mind's processes, the more familiar this becomes. You see the arising of something like patiga, anger, coming up. The mindful person knows that leads to unskillful behavior. The mindful person, of course, is mindful of it as arising as well. Therefore, doesn't go through with it, abandons anger, replaces it often with kindness. This is the mindful attitude. Now this is quite different from paying attention. I often, there's quite a lot of, I feel, sloppiness sometimes in the use of the word mindfulness when actually it's often being referred just to paying attention. And one, one phrase I, I've often heard, often in actually MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy context, is that, for example, it says you can be a mindful burglar. Burglar. Somebody burgles houses, goes into houses and steals things. Or a mindful sniper. 
This is a complete wrong use of the word mindfulness here. What you've got is somebody who's very skilled in paying attention. Yeah? And attention is what's called within these you know, um, great long lists that you get in the Abhidhamma. It's, uh, attention is what's called an, is a universal mental factor that arises with every moment of perception. Attention is what arises with every moment of perception. However, attention, which is called manasakara, can take a wholesome form and an unwholesome form. So I can pay attention to things which are very unwholesome, like developing my skills as a sniper. Or I can pay attention in particular ways that develops wholesome skills. And that's yonaso and ayonaso manasakara. The word yonaso actually refers to the womb um, and actually what's given birth to. So actually unskillful behavior is literally like a stillborn. It's really, really unproductive of anything good in this world. And so the word that's being used is really indicating that this attention is a variable quality. It's ethically variable. It moves. We can place our attention just as avidly on really unwholesome things as we can on wholesome things. So when it's attention, wise attention, as it's put, yonaso manisakaro, then it's placed on wholesome factors, the development of wholesome, wholesome things within our life. When it's unwholesome, it's ayonaso manasakara. It's placing it on anything which is really quite, can, can be really um, violent, can be really extremely criminal in its actions. So look at the way you place your mind. That's stage one, because attention is stage one of this development. So it really means that we have to look very carefully where you're placing your mind. Where are you? You, know, you can do this almost as a, a thing within daily life. Where is my mind now? <laughs> Just in daily life. Where has it gone? Where is it? Is it on the unwholesome or is it on the wholesome? Now, you don't have to do it so you become completely self-conscious about everything, but it's a good question to ask yourself just in daily activities. Where is my mind now? Where is your mind when you're doing a mundane task? You know, doing, I don't know, the hoovering, or doing the washing up, chopping the vegetables. Well, actually, these are things you do here, aren't they? <laughs> so these are very familiar things. Where is your mind when you're doing them? Is it off thinking about something else? Or is it actually with the task? Is it placed on, don't like this, as you chop your veg? You know, or is it placed on you know, something wholesome? That's a question I think you can have for yourselves. So when we talk about meta here, we're talking about a quality of mindfulness that is always wholesome. It's literally a mind suffused with wholesomeness. So this is why, actually, mindfulness works. Because when the odd even moments, when we have a genuine mindfulness moment, I'm not talking about a mindfulness half an hour or a mindfulness 45 minutes or (laughs) anything like that. You know, if we have a genuine mindfulness moment, all of those wholesome mental qualities are there. 
You might find, for example, even something to go there, I'm not going to go into it, but they talk about the lightening of the mind. Remember I talked about the stodgy mind, the mind with joylessness in it. Joy is in this mind. The mind is light. It's malleable. It's able to move from one thing to another quickly, without rigidity, without fixity within it. All of that occurs as well. Genuine kindness and genuine friendliness are also like that. They're receptive. Yeah? They're responsive. They're not reactive. The mind without mindfulness is a reactive mind. This is something, in a sense, we've been exploring all week, looking at the reactive nature of all of our mental processes. So metta is, instead of trying to think it with the head, feel it with the heart. Yeah. And this is why we come into this relationship with the phrases that we use for developing metta and for the other factors as well, the other Brahma-Vihara factors. Now, we have to get this clear. This is the reason why I say we have to distinguish it from sentimentality. We certainly also have to distinguish it from romantic love. It's nothing of that sort. In fact, romantic love will lead to attachment. Yeah? And metta is not attached. Yeah, it doesn't grasp after the other. Yeah? So the genuine feelings of friendliness, if you really befriend something or someone, particularly someone, if you really have that quality, and you can almost say this is a love, but you know, I'd actually still stick with this word friendliness. If you have this genuine feeling of friendliness and kindness towards others, it's a kindness and friendliness that allows them to depart, allows them to go, allows them to develop in their own ways, you know, without having control and manipulation, which are all, again, centred on self and the machinations of the self wishing to control everything. Yeah. Romantic love is often like that because there's great big hooks <laughs> with it. Yeah. Great big hooks which are kind of binding the two parties together in a way. And so there's a lot of attachment, a lot of grasping. It doesn't have to be that way. I'm just kind of talking about it realistically. It doesn't have to be that way, but this is often the way it is here. It often doesn't lead to real relationship either. Yeah. As I often put the whole notion of relationship in this friendliness here, a relationship between two individuals, three individuals, four individuals, friends, lovers, whatever it might be, is a, is a whole series of negotiated changes. That's what relationship is, is negotiated change. You know, because both parties are changing. It's rather sad, isn't it, when we call it love, and we actually what it is is a snapshot of somebody when you first met them that you hold in your mind until the snapshot doesn't actually fit with the reality any longer. <laughs> you know, and that's when the mismatch takes place. This is the rather sad element when somebody, you know, who's been with I don't know, somebody for a long, long period of time, let's say 20, 30 years or something, you know, turns over in bed one day and go, You've changed. <laughs> <laughs> that's when the mismatch has become so glaringly obvious <laughs> so actually what's really really involved in this friendliness is, is taking change you know, being able to take the change of the other 
being able to let go as well. All of this is implied in metta. Now, as you can see, all of that takes a tremendous amount of mindfulness. All of it takes a huge amount of mindfulness. It's not simply paying attention. I have to do things. You know? I have to do things in my life. I have to do things to be with another in this way. Otherwise, the other is, is Jean-Paul Sartre's hell. <laughs> you know, hell is other people. <laughs> His idea of hell, by the way, was four people locked in a room. <laughs> yeah, that was hell. So, actually, it says more about Sartre than anything else. Um, but this is obviously very, very different from the quality that's being expressed in metta. So metta is not the same as romantic love because that is coming with an attachment. It comes with lots of imagery. imagery. It comes with lots of romanticism. It's very, very difficult to get away from that. I mean, virtually every pop song is about this. You know, lots of poetry is about it, and lots of literature is about it. So we have these kind of ideals about, again, romantic love. Well, let's get it away from that, because it's not. It's friendliness, a boundless friendliness of the open heart towards others you know, that can let almost anybody in to that space and feel that friendliness, to feel that warmth. Now... One word that occurs again and again and again and again in the Pali Canon is a word which actually we often don't see mentioned even in popular books on Buddhism. It's a word actually that's the word that's used genuinely for compassion and it's not the word karuna. Karuna is usually the word that's used for compassion here. But the word you find in the Pali Canon is a word called anukampa. Anukampa in the original Pali. And this word actually means to pulsate along with. It has an even more powerful translation when you translate it as to cry out at the crying out of another. That's at the heart of what real compassion is. It's crying out at the crying out of another. Often... Uh, metaphors are used, particularly Buddha Gosa in the 5th century uses metaphors to describe the relationships. So metta is like the boundless friendliness or love towards a mother to her child. The image that's used here now is of the sick child. Compassion is that feeling along with that comes with the child being sick, ill here, and that arises. Um, often they use these images of the relationship between mothers and children, often in Eastern contexts, but I think they even speak to us, obviously, in the Western world. So it's pulsating along with. It's not just feeling for. Yeah? It's not just a feeling for others. It's a being with, a being with them. Yeah, a feeling along with. Um, it's also considered to be, and it sounds rather strange, this feeling, insurmountable bliss as well, because it's real engagement. It's called ananda. This is the bliss that comes with real engagement with others. And this comes out of both love, friendliness, if you want to continue to use the word love, friendliness and then the development of compassion, this compassionate attitude towards others. 
In the story of the Buddha's awakening, it's very interesting. Again, partly it's mythological, but I think it says something within this. The Buddha doesn't really become a Buddha immediately, in some sense. He doesn't become a Buddha supposedly just by discovering dependent origination and the cause of suffering and things like this. In what's implied in the mythology, again, if you look at the original sources, what's implied in the mythology, the Buddha doesn't really become what's called a fully awakened Buddha, Samyak Sambuddhasa, until he turns around. Because actually, when he first gains awakening, I don't know if you've read this story, most of you, but when he first gains awakening, he said, I don't know whether I'm going to teach this. This is too difficult. This is too difficult to teach. I don't know whether I have the energy to be able to communicate what... I've discovered in this, and whether others will be able to understand it. And then it says he's basically petitioned by something called Brahma Sahampati, uh, who's a kind of mythological figure, who comes and says, you know, please, please, he says, teach for the benefit of all. And the Buddha, it says, turns around and looks at suffering humanity, and then makes the decision to teach. And at that moment, he becomes a fully awakened Buddha. So in other words, he teaches out of the feeling of compassion for others. This is why he puts himself through a long teaching career, by any standards, 45 years, you know, wandering around northern India, teaching all and sundry, basically, over this period. So he only becomes this when he turns, in a sense, away from his own concerns yeah? and actually starts to see others. So it's a literally the word karuna here, which is the word often just used for compassion, literally means to turn outwards, to turn outwards and see others. So this implies actually being a little bit less self-obsessed. Yeah? about the difficulties we have, and actually seeing the difficulties others have in their lives, not just our own difficulties, which, yes, they can be hard, they can be fairly immense, but actually, um, as another Buddhist figure, Shantideva, says in the Bodhicharavatara, it makes no sense to talk about my pain and your pain. It only makes sense to talk about pain. My pain and your pain particularly related to the mental distress that we often feel, well, we all have it to greater or lesser extent. So why does it make, you know, why is it important to single it out as being mine? <laughs> you know, there's pain in the world. This is what it is. And this is meant to invoke compassion as well. You know, but not just a self-compassion. Now with the practice, again, compassion does start with self. We develop it for ourselves before developing it towards the relevant categories, of which there are a number, I mean, a number of categories. Self, benefactor, somebody who's helped you in your life, somebody you might never have thought about until this moment in time again, somebody who's been of benefit to you in your life. might be just a peripheral figure. But we've had many, many, many benefactors in our lives, many who've helped us in odd little things, sometimes major, sometimes very minor. They often go unrecognized by us. And this is developing a feeling of friendliness and compassion towards those who've helped us in our lives, hitherto, up to this point. Then we develop it towards a beloved friend, somebody who we already have a good relationship with. 
You develop it towards them. Wish them well. Wish them happiness. Wish them freedom from suffering as well. Then you develop it towards a difficult person, for example. Somebody who's difficult in your life. Somebody who you have great problems, who presses all the wrong buttons when when you're with them. You know, we have lots of those, don't we? Some, some people just know how to wind you up. <laughs> yeah. They do it for fun, too. <laughs> and then, lastly, there's the category of the neutral person. The person I have no strong feelings about. And that can be a really difficult category. I remember when we taught a long retreat here once, and some lady came and interviewed, and she said to me, she said, until this day, I always thought I was a very good person but I can't think of anybody I feel neutral towards I either, th- I either like them or I dislike them <laughs> yeah. so it's quite a difficult category even to, even to imagine who that person might be in your life might be somebody who's purely functionary you know, the person that delivers the milk or the person you see in the supermarket or the news agent or on the train you know, on a fairly regular basis or, or not at all the, the blind faceless Millions who are out there on the streets who you don't really pay attention to at all. So it's a very difficult category. And we develop both of these. We develop friendliness and kindness and compassion towards both. Both of these categories. So compassion, above all, is an action. Its other root that it's derived from is a root in Pali and Sanskrit, which is kriya, which means to act. Now, so we don't just sit here with a, a kind of I don't know, kind of gooey feeling. <laughs> you know, compassion and kindness and friendliness are not just gooey feelings. Uh, they, you know, we, you can't have we can sit there. Oh yes, I feel compassionate. Oh yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> we can do. We can. We can have all these feelings, particularly in a retreat centre. <laughs> you know, often when we come on retreat and we do these practices, it's all very well and good having these wonderful feelings about others. Uh, in a retreat situation, get out on the street again and see how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Get out in the, in the melee of ordinary life and see how you feel. Um, this friend of mine in Sri Lanka who used to run the meditation centre in Sri Lanka he used to have do this uh, on a very regular basis because pe- people used to come on retreat a bit like here for quite long periods of time on occasion. And after about a month or so, he would call them in for an interview. I mean, often they wouldn't request it. He'd call them in for an interview. And he said, how are you feeling? And some of them would say, oh, yes, I'm feeling much more compassionate, much calmer. And he said, all right, if you feel like that, go down to Kandy. When Kandy was the local Asian town, which is, if you've ever been to Asia, uh, it's fairly chaotic. It's very noisy. It's very hurly-burly, the whole place. And he said, if you still feel that, then you're getting somewhere. (laughs) You know, when you're sent out into the world. So it's kind of what the, the testing ground is not in the meditation centre. It's not on the cushion. The testing ground is out there. When we start talking about friendliness and compassion as actions, it's out there in the world that we really, really encounter them. Okay, I'm going to cut some of this short because otherwise it's going to end up into a marathon. Um, <laughs> mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy. Um, I don't think, again, it, does, it certainly doesn't do it in a translation for the Pali for me. It's, if you're going to translate it anyway in terms of sympathy, well, actually it isn't sympathy, it's empathy. It's an empathetic joy as much as anything else. But above all, the literal meaning of this 
is gentle joy. Mudita is gentle joy. It's a gentleness. The actual very word itself implies a kind of gentleness of feeling. It's virtually impossible, though, to find an adequate translation in Western languages. The closest I've ever come to it is German, which is Mitfreude. Um, That's probably about the closest I've ever come to it. Um, It's a feeling that has a, a sort of kind of quite a wide range of emotional resonances for us. And again, in terms of the actual practice, we develop it to all of the categories traditionally except ourselves. I actually include ourselves in it as well. Yeah? Be grateful, have gratitude for your own joys in your life, if you can find them. This is you know, to bring a bit of humility into things. You know, we're often, we often complain and moan about all the things we haven't got. You know, now celebrate the things you have. You know, the friendships, you know, the good things in your life, the little joys that arise in your ordinary, average, every day, you know, just in a bit of humour, for example, and something funny. But even more so, to celebrate the joys of, you know, if you've got your faculties, of being able to see, to see the beauty of colour, to hear the wind in the trees, to feel you know, the, the, the warmth or the coolness of wind on your skin. You know, this is something to be celebrated. This is something that is joyful. You know, it's not a kind of massive exuberance, but it's a kind of the gentle joy of just being here, which often gets lost again in the welter of dissatisfaction that we dwell in, in that welter of dissatisfaction. The actual meaning of it means soft-heartedness, gentleness, tenderness. All of these are implied in this word, mudita. This word, which is just usually starkly translated as sympathetic joy. I actually personally think this is one of the most difficult things, because if we take it as being some degree of empathy with another, um, it's actually quite a difficult quality, because actually this empathetic joy means literally taking joy in others' joy. I'm joyful because you're joyful. Things might not be going well in my life, but they're going well in your life. I will celebrate your joy. I will feel joy because of your joy. You know? And you can think of this, you know, I'm really glad that you've just won the national lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> you know, you can see it's opposite quite easily. Um, it's a sort of grudgingness about it. So it doesn't have any of that. Mudita is both, again, concern and bliss. It has a blissful element. It's, the, it's an infectious joy which is born of metta and karuna. So if you like, metta and karuna deal particularly with the more difficult, particularly karuna deals with the more difficult aspect of life, doesn't it? Because it's dealing with others' pain, others' suffering, that pulsating along with and feeling for them in their pain and their misery. You know, feeling for our own pains and miseries as well. So this is kind of the very difficult side. This is the, the harsher, more negative, perhaps, side of life that we see. But actually, the li- life is a mixture, isn't it? It's a play, as actually one of the Medita phrases has it. It's a play of joy and sorrow. You know, this is what life is. It's a play of joy and sorrow. You know, so even when I'm not having it, others are having it. 
So it's feeling joy that others are experiencing joy, being grateful for the joy that we experience in our own life, for the good things that, that happen to us. So it's, it's not a sort of joy that's born of self-absorption. Um, it rejoices literally in the joy of others. It rejoices in that. Upeka, just to bring this to a conclusion, I'm going to say something very briefly about this and you can ask me questions then if um, we've got a little bit of time. But tomorrow, bear in mind, I'll, I'll open up for a big session of question and answer, so don't feel you have to get all your questions in this evening. Upeka is the last of these developing developments of mindfulness in this world. So we've got four forms of mindfulness here, four very strong, and they're not just paying attention. Yeah. Yeah, in paying attention I can get romantic and I can get silly and I can get sloppy because it becomes very unwise after a while this mindfulness is a direct engagement the friendliness which is an engagement the karuna which is an engagement the anukampa which is an engagement obviously the friendliness and the compassion the joyfulness in this life let's celebrate things as well as being miserable about them yeah However, at the end of this path is equanimity. And I think in many ways this equanimity is what the Buddha also means to a degree by nibbana, by nirvana, by the culmination of the goal. The culmination is this being, having poise, balance in this world, not being thrown by those, you know, Hamlet's soliloquies, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune which are happening to us. You know, not being thrown off balance every time something happens, being compelled into reactivity yet again. So equanimity is the picture, if you like, of the perfectly balanced mind, of the perfectly balanced mind. There are all kinds of practices, I'm not going to talk about them this evening, which are associated with the development of equanimity. But this is, in a sense, where we're heading. This is the goal, in many ways, this development of a profound balance in life. But that is only born out of the other three factors. It's only born out of the mindfulness which is associated with friendliness, compassion and joy. The positive and the negative aspects of life. Seeing them clearly, being engaged. If anything that Buddhism is about, the Buddhist practice is about its engagement. This is why what you do on the cushion here literally is training or, actually, it's a very good word, it's practice. So when I'm developing karuna, when I'm developing compassion on the cushion, when I'm developing metta on the cushion, I'm actually practicing for real life. Yeah? I'm practicing for what happens when I get off the cushion and move back out into the world, as, as you will do tomorrow, when you, you know, kind of come out of silence and eventually go on your way homeward. You know, many of you will be doing that, some of you I know are not. So, we are practicing, and we're practicing to actually get this equanimous mind, the mind that is still. The Abhidhamma, again, has a nice kind of take on this. It doesn't use the word upeka, it uses the word, I think I mentioned this last night, tatramajatata. Tatramajatata, literally being in the middle. And it has two connotations, being in the middle of life and not being thrown off balance but being in the middle between the two poles of reactiveness that we're normally thrown about in. What are they? Greed and aversion. 
That's the two poles of reactiveness. So equanimity is the perfect picture of the poised mind in life. I'll finish there. Okay, well, we have, well, about, let's say, 15 minutes for some questions, if there are some. Yeah. Um, this is just for my own curiosity, and if you mentioned it, I'm, I missed it, so feel free to just say yes or no. Okay. <laughs> um, I was wondering, the, the literal meaning of um, Brahmapa, um, Brahma Mahara, yep. did that form the foundation of, um, of the Hinayana tradition, or was that later on? Uh, well, the Hinayana, Hinayana is not a term I personally would use. Um, it's, it is used within the thing. It's, it's, um, can I just say a couple of words about that, and then I'll move on to the main bulk of your question. The word Hinayana, which is often used in relationship to non-Mahayana forms of Buddhism, the Mahayana being most of the schools that you'll find in, for example, China, Tibet, Japan, Korea, most of these, such as Zen Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism or Chan Buddhism, all of these are Mahayana forms of Buddhism, which have a slightly different outlook or a slightly different vision of what the practice is about. Now, Hinayana is a term used by Mahayanists to refer to the rest of Buddhism. And actually, it's usually translated as something like um, the little vehicle, the small vehicle, as opposed to the great vehicle. The word hina in, in Sanskrit and Pali literally means inferior. It literally, so it's a pejorative term that was used by one group of Buddhists to another group of Buddhists, basically. What we're really referring to, though, is the earliest strata of the teachings, which were prior to any of those distinctions. The Brahma-viharas are at the very heart of many of the suttas that the, you know, the Buddha um, is said to have spoken and been recorded by his disciple, Ananda, and they form the heart of much of what is the Pali Canon. Now, again, Pali Canon often gets associated with being Theravada Buddhism. It isn't. The Pali Canon is just the only complete canon of actually any Indian religious tradition we have in the world. No other canon has survived complete. The only reason this particular canon survived was it was taken to Sri Lanka at a very early period and therefore was held in repository by what became the Theravada school of Buddhism. However, something like the Pali canon was there within all schools of Buddhism. So much so, there's a complete other tradition which is preserved in a Chinese translation um, which is called the Agamas, and they mirror what's in the Pali Canon. And the Chinese tradition, obviously, is a Mahayana tradition, but they've got all of this material within their own Chinese canon, which is called the Daisho. And so that's all present there. So the Brahma Viharas form part of the core of those teachings. There's a very famous sutta in the Long Discourse, it's called the Tavidya Sutta. And that, in that particular sutta, the Buddha lays out the importance of the Brahma Viharas. You get the Metta Sutta in this very ancient text, the Sutta Napata. You know, so it's, it's all part of it. Some traditions make it much more explicit, and particularly the Theravada make it very explicit. However, I think to a degree they misinterpret it as a concentration practice. Yeah. I think when we go back to the early text, when we look at the early text, we see much, much more that it's a mindfulness practice that these practices are insight practices as well. Now, some of them made their way into the Mahayana canon and the practices in, but primarily you find it in this early strata of Buddhism. And that's why you find it in the Theravada and emphasized in the Theravada. 
Gosh, that was a long answer to a short question. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no so it's me that's making it complex. But <laughs> yeah, and then. There's not going to be any time to practice on the Brahmavihara. The Brahmaviharas is a whole separate retreat in itself and the development of those factors. You know, actually, interesting, in my own teaching, often at Gaia House, I do one of two things. I either do this kind of retreat or the Brahmaviharas. That's basically the only teaching I do in that practical sense because I feel that they're both complementary to each other. Yeah. I think it should be balanced. I think it should be balanced. I mean, part of the reason, and here's a bit of a rationale, I think I gave it to you slightly before, a bit of a rationale behind why we look at the unwholesome states. Why do we, look, why do we spend so much time looking at these unwholesome states? Because actually, normally, they're going on so fast in ordinary life, I don't see them. You know, we're just caught up in them. Yeah. Here is an opportunity to really see the mind in operation, the mind in action. Now, because it's sangsara, a lot of what we're engaged in is dominated by unwholesome states of mind, often not perceived, but just giving rise to action and speech in particular. Often it's not perceived. So this is the reason why we spend quite a bit of time, because it's this slowing down process. Remember the slowness that I spoke of? Well, this is the slowness, the slowing down process, beginning to see the problem, to see why even, you know, often when we meditate for long periods of time, we don't actually see much progress in terms of our interactions with others. They're often still as fragile and brittle as they were 20 years ago. And that's often because we haven't seen the depth of the problem. And the Buddha is very, very strong on this, of actually beginning to see the depth of the problem. Because an illness only half-diagnosed will return. Yeah? If it's fully diagnosed, then we know exactly, in many ways, what to do about it. What to actually prescribe as the regimen back to health here. And I think this is exactly the same case with the Buddha's teaching. We spend a lot of time looking at the unwholesome states of mind. As I, as I kind of joked about it one night, and said, I'm not trying to make you feel miserable. This is not just an, an attempt to make you feel miserable and just how bad you are. It's completely the opposite, actually is actually to see that there is space, that there is gaps, that there are sometimes the absence of those things as well as their presence. You know, there's sometimes the absence of hindrances, sometimes not a lot, but there are absences, there are gaps, there are other things that are arising as well as just the hindrances. 
So actually, in beginning to look and almost sort of touch and palpate the unwholesome, you start to see the lacunae, which actually are the presence of the, often of the wholesome there. Now, today, obviously, we've directed our focus completely the opposite way. And this is the balance, again, starting even because it's quite subtle to see you know, that the absence of a, a hindrance, say, is the presence of something wholesome. Then we start to look at you know, really what wholesome factors are there to see how often they arise or how little they arise in our life. If we see them arising very little, we know we've got a lot of work to do. And I think probably most of us have in terms of cultivating those wholesome states. But it means cultivating them in relationship to the unwholesome because it's a kind of turning away from the enemy, not repressing it, but turning away from it, not, no longer feeding those things any longer because I see them clearly. I'm not going to feed my anger. I'm not going to feed my jealousy. I'm not going to feed my irritation. I'm not going to feed this and that and everything else. And if we cease to feed them, a bit like the fire going out, these weeds will die. They will wither and die. Yes. Yeah, if you, if you really did. In fact, uh, you would see them, for example, even in relationship to what I've been talking about tonight. You know, because if I'm really, really developing the right mindfulness, which is friendly in attitude, I really know when it's not. I really know when there's the absence of that friendliness in my life. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, and this is what it's about. You know, though, with somebody with, as I said, in relationship to what I've talked about so far, somebody with real right mindfulness has boundless friendliness. As long as that, as soon as the moment they drop out of it, that disappears. So, this is the watchword: is be mindful. Try to be mindful, but it's not just paying attention because it means behaving mindfully, as well. You know. Just a little, well, it's not just a little thing, it's actually a very important thing. You know, here is a behavioral form of mindfulness. The irritating person, the person I really find it difficult to get on with, can I just listen with a bit more mindfulness to what they're saying, a little bit more friendliness? Can I even speak a few words of friendliness towards them? Yeah? Incline your mind towards that. See if you can do that. You know, or whatever other difficult situations you can think of where, you know, where the automatic thing is to want to flee from it. You know? The mindful person is not just mindful, I'm totally there and I'm, I'm just oozing compassion and friendliness. The mindful person is actually also implying making effort as well. But that's a bigger story which comes in with the whole the Eightfold Path. And Sorry, there are no simple, quick, easy stories in relation to Buddhist practice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Pardon? Was that a simple story? <laughs> there were some other questions. Yeah. Not to harm. Uh, it's perhaps a very simple, but uh, I'm living in the middle of Norway, 
They're just looking for lunch. Well, it just shows you, for one thing, that living the precepts is not easy because it's dependent on context, often. Um, this has been an age-old problem in, in the history of Buddhism, actually, is, is how do you live that first precept in terms of harmlessness? Well, it's an attempt to live as harmlessly as possible. I think that's the best way you can put it. So if we, if we have a kind of carbon footprint, we have a footprint of harm in this world, now, it's all very well, I think, if we live in temperate climates, um, in situations, in cities and that, to get very offended by people that have to kill animals, say, in a desert situation. Let's put the opposite to the kind of, in a desert situation or in, say, in the kind of snowy north of Norway or somewhere up towards the Arctic Circle. It's, all very difficult to get, it's very easy to get romantic about it and say they shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. Well, people live. They have to live. The exact same, same kind of dilemma was faced by people, for example, in central Tibet, which had exactly the same problem. Um, you couldn't grow very much. Um, virtually every Tibetan I know eats meat and still continues to eat meat uh, as a result of that um, because it partly has become cultural now, but in their own situation, they couldn't grow much food. It, uh, potato was about the best it got, you know. Um, the Tibetan diet was very sparse. I mean, I usually describe Tibetan cuisine as the worst in the world. <laughs> Endless diet of ground barley flour and butter and meat. And, uh, you know, even their tea says it all, buttered tea. <laughs> you know... <laughs> So it's the exact same situation. So there's no, there's no, in a sense, this is why there are rules of training, why they're not absolutes, you know, um, because we might find ourselves in a situation where we do have to 
harm something, but or kill something. But when we do so, do we do it out of a mindlessness or out of simple desire, craving? Or do we do it with mindfulness? Know what we're doing and know that this is what we have to do at this stage in time. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a big dilemma. But remember, the, the precepts themselves are not like the Ten Commandments. They're rules of training. You know, in, our, in most of our normal situations, if we live you know, in Britain, if we live, then we don't have to kill. We don't have to be engaged in our harm. You know, we don't live in these extreme situations. I think most of us probably would swat the you know, place we get them in this country is in Scotland, all the midges which are always biting. I've actually seen somebody throw themselves in a river to try and get, them, get away from them when they've been biting. You know, but it's trying to live as harmlessly as possible and actually to know what you're doing. I think that's the real clear thing, is to know what you're doing. Know that if harm is, is required, that you are doing it. Yeah. So I don't think we can avoid... We, just living creates harm, doesn't it? You know, the, even vegetarianism is no real answer. You know, somebody, I always remember somebody saying to me that it's basically you know, just that um, animals scream louder than plants. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's something that we, we just can't live without, doing harm. So it's an attempt to minimise our harmfulness on this world. Um, even when you, again, kind of just it's slightly moving away from it, but it's still within the same orbit. For example, in Sri Lanka, where I lived for quite a long time, then one of the things you would get offered on a very daily basis... Now, I'd managed, when I was in India, to be vegetarian, despite the fact that Tibetans ate meat. I mean, by the time I got to Sri Lanka, I looked like a human xylophone. <laughs> but apart from that, because all they ate was meat and this kind of ghastly diet that the Tibetans have. But when I got to Sri Lanka and I said I was vegetarian, I said, there's no way, you can't be vegetarian in Sri Lanka because actually you've got to take what is offered to you. You've got to, if somebody, you know, within Theravadan tradition, if you, you know, actually primarily people came into the monasteries and offered food, if they come into the food, you can't say, no, I'm not eating that because it's fish, because that's primarily what was offered. Whereas fish, I can't not eat that, you know, because I'm vegetarian. It's, you know, you take what is offered to you, what's given to you. So this kind of sniffiness we often get about diets, I think the Buddha is even trying to put that in perspective. Yeah, even. So I think, you know, I think it's a really important question when you ask, but it's not taking really that precept as being absolute. Yeah. There's a very famous case, actually, in the history of Tibet where I suppose where a king was assassinated by a Buddhist monk, um, basically to stop him from harming others. Yeah, because he was engaged in repression and all sorts of things. Um, and traditionally the story is told that this king was assassinated so that he wouldn't continue to do this. But the monk himself took on the karma of killing in order to do that, knowing full well, full and mindfully, according to the story, mindfully that he knew what he was doing yeah, and knew it with full awareness that that was the case. So know if you if you do have to kill, know that you're doing it. Yeah, just one more question, I think.
Yes, it is. So, um, one week, a few days ago, we were doing an exercise, yeah, noticing one arm on. Anything you feel aversion to is ill will. Let me just say something about this. There's lots of synonyms used in these lists. And I think it's partly because sometimes when we hear the word, for example, the words that's used for aversion can be translated as hatred. You know, Dosa can be translated as hatred equally as well as it can be translated as aversion. Now, hatred, I think that probably often would have been the way that people in India would have heard that word. Often is something we don't feel we have. I mean, if I said, you know, how many people do you hate in your life? Well, you'd probably be struggling, I think, most of you. You might have a few. There might be none. I don't actually have that emotion, you would say. Some of you might say. I don't actually have that emotion. However, I think the Buddha is trying to make it even more basic. He's saying, even if you don't experience it at that kind of high-grade level then sometimes we are things that we just ha- have irritation about. Oh, yeah, very much. Yes, yes, it includes, includes others and includes ourselves. We can have ill will. I mean, actually, that's why metta is so important, because a lot of us do have ill will towards ourselves. Yeah. And so it's kind of an attempt, I think, the Buddha to, to have a spectrum of things, because I might say I'm not hating but I've still got an awful lot of ill will. I'm irritated, I'm grumpy, I'm all these sorts of things, you know, um, but I, def- I definitely don't hate. <laughs> you know, and it's trying to show it actually runs through a kind of spectrum all the way down. Like the word dukkha has a spectrum from suffering all the way down to minor dissatisfaction. You know, I really like this, but there's a little too much sugar in it. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. So we get a, re- a really good spectrum of different feelings. So uh, um, in the same exercise, I, some, I wondered whether when my mind actually just wanted to kind of go off, drift off, I wondered, is that also a, a version from being in the present? It is. Yeah. Yep, it is. And if it's kind of just, for example, if it's dullness, I didn't really mention this at the time, but for example, if, you know, when we talk about tina midda, which is actually the words for sloth and torpor, sleepiness and drowsiness, you tend to think, oh, yeah, it's going to be me going like this. and It's not. When you feel this dullness come over you, when there's no brightness in the mind, that's sloth and torpor as well. when there's that lack of brightness, when there's a lack of vitality, a lack of interest, that's shading into your sleepiness and drowsiness. You might never go to sleep, or even feel yourself nodding off, but it's definitely still the same, it's on the same hindrance, basically. Okay, I'm going to call it close now. And as I say... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.